You couldn't find a hundred people in Washington, D.C. who could meaningfully talk to you about disinformation in, in 2014. Now, of course, there's a dozen of them in every room that you enter because there's so much money and so much government power behind it. Jacob Siegel is senior editor at Tablet Magazine, where he published A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, 13 Ways of Looking at Disinformation which documents the brave new information world we find ourselves in today. They're claiming the right to all of it, that anything that goes through your mind is now something that needs to be policed for public safety and national security reasons. In this comprehensive two-part interview, we discuss how the concept of disinformation became a tool of deception. Technocratic officials manufacture consensus and wage a counterinsurgency-style war on truth it has, according to Siegel, deranged our public discourse. Whatever you think of Donald Trump, it's not democratic by any stretch of the imagination to lead a bureaucratic ruling class coup against a legitimately elected president. That may be many things, but democracy, it is not. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Jacob Siegel, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to be here. Jacob, of course, we're going to talk about the guide to understanding the hoax of the century. Very, very important essay for me. Uh, kind, of, kind of almost definitive in this field of trying to understand what's happening with disinformation, censorship, the First Amendment, and uh, frankly, a lot more as we'll learn. But why don't you tell me, what, what is the actual hoax of the century? Because we've been faced with a lot of candidates uh, for this moniker. The hoax is that there is a grave threat from disinformation, uh, which is coming both from without and from within, and which is so, so grave that it justifies a state of emergency in which unelected regulators and national security officials can violate the Constitution to protect individual American citizens, the uh, American liberal democracy itself from disinformation. Uh, and it's a hoax because this threat quite simply doesn't exist. Uh, or more precisely, the threat has been so grossly overinflated to justify the power of this censorship bureaucratic apparatus that it eclipses the actual threat, such as it is, from foreign actors, uh, some of whom may indeed be carrying out what in a narrow technical sense we would define as disinformation. But the inflation of this threat uh, has really very little to do with the technical standard of disinformation and much more to do with a clampdown on democracy itself and on the constitutional protections afforded to Americans um, by people for whom um, no degree of, of absolute power is too much. You know, we keep hearing the term disinformation, and some people have even been suggesting to me you should stop using that term because it uh, means so, so, so many different things, okay? 
But you actually have a very interesting, uh, uh, I don't know if the definition is the description of it. Okay, I'm going to read it here. Disinformation is both the name of the crime and the means of covering it up, a weapon that doubles as a disguise. Wow. So, so explain this. Well, the crime is that disinformation is itself a lie. As I just explained, the supposed threat of disinformation, which originally was supposed to be coming from Russia, but very rapidly evolved into a all-encompassing threat uh, where supposed COVID uh, misinformation was now part of the same category that once included deliberate state-backed deceptions by the Russian government. Um, and so the, the crime in that sense was the use of this uh, false pretext, the disinformation threat, to claim these uh, powers over and above the will of the American people and over and above the Constitution. At the same time, because that weapon is drawn from the worlds of espionage and uh, military warfare, that's where disinformation comes from originally, it is a, a tool of deception. So it, it works by confusing the public, by obscuring the truth, by breaking down the essential boundaries between public and private, between war and peace for that matter, because the basic premise of the disinformation warriors is that the internet has made it so that we can be attacked from all sides at any time and national borders are no longer a protection because Russian trolls can now infiltrate our electoral system. According to them, we now, of course, know that all of these claims about Russia's interference in the 2016 election were either invented whole cloth or were so wildly exaggerated as to essentially be inventions. Um, but, but that claim essentially uh, deranged public discourse in America. It made it virtually impossible to deal honestly with the facts of the political situation. And in a classic sense, it was itself an information operation. So the claim that Russia was attacking the United States via disinformation, a claim that very rapidly evolved into a an even more ambiguous and all-encompassing claim that disinformation and misinformation were now coming from everywhere, from people who opposed lockdowns, from people who resisted getting, uh, you know, mandatory boosters for vaccinations, from people who uh, stated, uh, you know, their objections to the war in Ukraine. All of these things fell under the rubric of misinformation and disinformation. That was itself a kind of information war. And it was a war on truth itself, and it was a war on the control over truth and the control over sense-making. And in that sense, um, it disguised the actual naked power grab behind a, a kind of veneer of public safety and of national security. You, you mentioned Hamilton 68 in the article, of course, this famous, the famous case where they just picked actual, you know, run-of-the-mill Americans who were talking about things that were inconvenient. Uh, they became Russian, basically agents of Russian disinformation. So when, in fact, if you can say that certain Americans either have believed or conjured up the same idea as an actual Russian disinformation campaign, can that be considered Russian disinformation and dealt with as such? It's a powerful tool to make that claim. Um, because it means that you can apply the weapons of warfare to your domestic political opponents. And indeed, what you just described, this kind of conflation of foreign actors and domestic political actors, that claim is the foundation of the war against disinformation, um, this fraudulent war against disinformation. And the lead figure behind Hamilton 68 is a former army, army officer and uh, FBI analyst by the name of Clint Watts. Mm -hmm. Watts, uh, during the 2016 election, 
wrote a very influential article in the Daily Beast making the claim that the Kremlin's propaganda efforts through uh, its troll accounts and domestic political speech by Donald Trump supporters had converged to a point where they were indistinguishable. Which is to say, if you followed that claim to its logical conclusion, there was a fifth column inside the United States made up of Trump supporters, uh, who he, Watts, and his co-author uh, for that piece referred to derisively as Trumpkins. So essentially what he was saying is that they were the same as Kremlin agents. They were perhaps unwittingly, but nevertheless, carrying out the actions of a foreign government hostile to the United States. They were committing, you know, at, at the very least, an act of gross disloyalty unto treason, and at the worst, were carrying out an active campaign, an active measure on behalf of Russia. This is before the kind of official war against disinformation is launched as President Obama is leaving office, but that establishes the foundations for it. As you're mentioning this, I think it's worth remembering, and you do this in the piece, of what came of this intelligence community assessment around this question of who the Russians wanted to win or what, what their political uh, you know, influence attempts were actually aimed at. Maybe I'll get you to, to remind us of that. Yeah. So an intelligence community assessment, uh, often called an ICA, is supposed to represent the consensus view of the 17 different U.S. intelligence agencies. It's not directly a product of the CIA or of the NSA, and so therefore it is supposed to sort of equalize for the biases that might be present in any one intelligence agency by presenting only what they can all agree to. But the, the ICA that was published in, or released on January 7, 2017, which was the ICA that concluded and presented to the American public the claim that Russia had interfered in the 2016 election to help get Donald Trump elected. So it, it was the seminal official document in spreading the idea of Russian collusion and spreading the idea as a, you know, the official determination of the United States government that Putin had actively helped Donald Trump. That which was declassified to release to the public by President Obama, that document was not, in fact, a dispassionate, objective assessment reached by the 17 different U.S. intelligence agencies. What we now know from a series of subsequent reports and from people like Mike Pompeo, who later took over the CIA, is that it was effectively single-handedly the work of the Obama-appointed CIA director, John Brennan, who not only made the determination to include the utterly fraudulent and debunked Steele dossier in the ICA. So this very important ICA, which you know, sort of made it official that Putin had tried to help Trump, was based in part on the, the, the fraudulent Steele dossier. But it also was effectively the work of Brennan who handpicked certain analysts who would support his conclusions, and as Pompeo later said, disregarded the conclusions reached by longtime Russia hands who had come to very different determinations, some of whom, in fact, believed that Putin actually favored Hillary Clinton because she was the more predictable candidate, not because she was a Kremlin stooge, but simply because Trump was considered a wild man and a wild card, and Putin thought that Clinton would be easier to control. So Brennan uh, writes this assessment through his kind of surrogates in the intelligence agencies, or creates this assessment. Uh, Obama declassifies it, and put, puts it out into the American public discourse, utterly deranging our political discourse for the next four years as we chase after these illusions. And this is what I mean by the, the ways in which disinformation is a disguise. We're chasing after shadows and conspiracies about the president being a, a Manchurian candidate instead of looking at the actual political reality. There's one other thing that's significant to point out, which is that the same day that the ICA is released, so the same day that the Russiagate conspiracy is injected into the bloodstream 
of the American body politic, another important thing happens, which is that the outgoing head of the Department of Homeland Security, Jed Johnson, makes a determination by fiat, essentially, to push through a measure which had encountered fierce resistance from local actors. As Johnson himself acknowledges, he pushes through a measure to place all electoral infrastructure in the United States, which includes something like 8,000 pieces of election machines spread across the country, to place all of that under the direct control, uh, direct jurisdiction of the Department of Homeland Security. Johnson himself acknowledges that local electoral officials had fiercely opposed this measure, which they considered a usurpation of local sovereignty and, and you know, regional control. And so he makes this determination over the objections of those local officials on the same day January 7th, 2017, when the ICA is released. So it is a, a pivotal day. I think it's unlikely that that was by accident. Seems unlikely that was by accident. Be, it would be a tremendous coincidence <laughs> if it was. And you know, the fact that Johnson acknowledges that this was an extremely unpopular measure and that he pushes it through uh, as the claim about Trump-Russia collusion is being broadcast to the American public is significant. And what it also means, it also sort of foreshadows what is to come, which is that having declared its jurisdiction over the entire national election infrastructure based on a claim about Putin's involvement in Russia's involvement in the 2016 election, what ends up happening is that as the underlying claim that justifies that is debunked, as report after report, the Mueller report, the subsequent IG report, debunk the claim of Russian collusion in the 2016 election, the underlying bureaucratic authority, the bureaucratic coup, remains in place. So uh, it doesn't matter, ultimately, that Putin didn't favor Donald Trump, didn't interfere meaningfully in the 2016 election to get Trump uh, put in office. That, we can litigate that forever and cry uh, about the injustice of it, but in the end, even after it's debunked, the power grab remains in place and in fact grows. So that decision to place the electoral infrastructure under the control of DHS is justified on the basis that DHS is responsible for defending the homeland from foreign threats. But what ends up happening is that this defense against foreign disinformation sort of evolves uh, around 2018 into an even more expansive defense against misinformation coming from within the United States. So just as we're disproving the claims on which the whole thing is based about uh, Trump-Russia collusion, now DHS is creating a new office, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, and claiming that it has to police the electoral infrastructure, which now it determines includes not only voting machines, but the entire internet from domestic misinformation. That's the natural evolution of this system of total information control. I believe they called it cognitive infrastructure, right? I thought I always, whenever I hear that term, I get a chill up my spine. As um, well you should. I mean, it is a sinister and um, you know, it's a term borrowed from a dystopian 20th century literature with which many of us are acquainted and which we hadn't imagined could manifest so directly in the United States. Cognitive infrastructure is something out of Philip K. Dick. It's something out of uh, George Orwell. It is not something I think many of us considered becoming a, a standard article of speech in the American official class. And yet here we are, that's the exact term that was used by the head of CISA, Jen Easterly. And what that's saying is that the government 
has the authority, the right to police our collective unconscious, essentially, as it's uh, contained in or channeled through not only the public-facing internet, but indeed the private internet also, where our, you know, our private keystrokes and uh, searches are logged and collected into centralized databases that can be uh, combed through by algorithms. They're, they're claiming the right to all of it, that anything that goes through your mind is now something that needs to be policed for public safety and national security reasons. I want you to tell me a little, you mentioned the Daily Beast, you know, publishing this. Are you, you used to work at the Daily Beast yourself. And so why don't you chart for me a bit your, your, you know, your career and why you seem to know so much about these things? Sure. I, uh, you know, I, I got into journalism fairly late in life. I had been uh, writing fiction and I was in the Army prior to journalism. I was a military intelligence officer for most of my time and an infantry officer in the National Guard uh, for part of my time. And I deployed to Iraq in 2006, 2007 during the surge and had a, a searing experience, but not one that was especially uh, political. I, I wouldn't say it was something I had to process in terms that were not directly political necessarily. And I did that by writing fiction, by traveling across the country. And then in 2012, I deployed to Afghanistan. And despite being in most every measurable way a much easier deployment than Iraq had been, shorter, less violent, um, less searing, it was a more political experience in the sense that it sort of had a, a pace during what I thought was the end of the war in 2012, because I was convinced the war was about to end, that allowed me to reflect on what we were still doing there and to really examine these enormous gaps I saw, this just enormous yawning chasm between the official accounts of the war in Afghanistan and what I observed on the ground. And that included uh, what was being said about our training of the Afghan National Security Forces which had become the centerpiece of the U.S. mission in a total replay of Vietnam, I should say. And, um, you know, this is what was the Vietnamization era of the war in Vietnam. It was the idea that, uh, you know, the, the focus of efforts would be on getting the Vietnamese, South Vietnamese forces to take over. And in Afghanistan, it was a very similar thing. We were going to train the Afghan National Security Forces and build capacity, as we quite euphemistically referred to it in the Afghan uh, government and, and civil organizations, to a point where we could then extricate ourselves from the war. That was the claim. But I found it to be a, a kind of absurd, implausible lie on almost every level. For one thing, by 2012, I could see that there was no unified Afghan national security forces to speak of. Um, much of the on-paper strength of those security forces, it was not real. It was a kind of administrative fantasy. In other words, if a particular unit was supposed to have X number of soldiers, maybe only a third of that mustered at any given time. And of those who mustered, some of them were only there to get a paycheck and then disappear. Um, in units that did have higher sort of standing strength numbers, it wasn't because they were loyal to this national force that we were supposed to be building. It was because they were loyal to particular local commanders. Some of these soldiers, I, I should hasten to add, were brave, patriotic Afghan men who were who were trying to protect their families and uh, fight a quite brutal enemy in, in the Taliban. But that doesn't mean that there was a, a real Afghan national force, which is what the US was supposedly investing in. So this, this whole sort of nation building project, I found to simply not exist. And it, it seemed to me quite obvious for anyone on the ground that it didn't exist. Anyone could see that the, the units that we were supposed to be training and assisting and advising, many of them were uh, merely sort of 
auditing tricks, tricks of paperwork. Others were already cutting deals with the Taliban, which made sense if you were in their position because they expected us to leave fairly soon and they had to make their long-term peace in a country they were going to be stuck in after we left. So I, I was taking all of this in and I was trying to figure out what are we really accomplishing? Why are we still in this country? It obviously poses no direct threat to the U.S. homeland. Uh, we could deal with what al-Qaeda presence there is remotely as we do in Yemen and in other countries. We don't need to have a garrison force. We don't need to be trying to teach, you know, uh, feminist empowerment theory to Afghan girls as we were in order to be carrying out counterterrorism missions against al-Qaeda. So, so what are we really doing here? And as I was trying to answer that question for myself, the other thing I observed as an intelligence officer was that while we couldn't answer these very basic fundamental questions, what are we doing at war? What are we trying to accomplish here? How does this relate to the security of Americans in the homeland? We were simultaneously collecting as much data as ever existed in the Library of Alexandria time to, times a thousand. And we were collecting that much data on a daily basis through drone operations, through biometrics, where we collected fingerprints and iris scans from Afghans. And all of that data was being fed into these centralized databases and systems like Palantir that were supposed to be performing what's known as predictive analysis. And predictive analysis worked on the premise that if only you collected enough data and then you fed it through the right algorithms, you could see what was coming next. You could anticipate the enemy's next move. And for that matter, you could anticipate the next move of the civilian population, how a particular U.S. program might sway public support one way or the other. And so we were becoming these sort of masters of information control, masters of databases, in a war in which we weren't making any progress. We had no more reason to be there. And that lodged in my mind. And that contradiction, or what appeared to be a contradiction, stayed with me and I think gave me the framework that allowed me to understand what was emerging in this counter-disinformation complex. But somehow, somehow along the way you became a journalist. Right. Yeah, I got back from Afghanistan in 2012 and pretty quickly took my first job in journalism at the Daily Beast, um, a place, a uh, newsroom, incidentally, that would go on to become a sort of ground zero for a lot of the Trump-Russia collusion claims and also for the disinformation beat um, that was emerging and that some of my colleagues uh, played a, a key role in um, propagating and became the sort of spokespersons for. And I, but I wasn't really thinking about that at the time. I was, I would say, trying to make sense of my experiences in a, a framework of still believing that the system was essentially sound and had been manipulated. And if only I could get the truth out to the American people, that would have some kind of salutary effect. And working through democratic processes um, understanding what a lost cause Afghanistan was, we could, uh, through public will, through our elected representatives, affect some kind of change. So the very first article I wrote for the Daily Beast was about the state of the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. I believe the title was Afghan Good Enough. And I make a number of points in that piece that I just made to you, that the training efforts were not amounting to much, that Afghan security forces we're cutting deals with the Taliban, et cetera. And fast forward, I would say what I observed was that by 2015, 2016, the sort of the mania over Donald Trump and um, the Russian collusion claims and the sheer force, the sheer intensity of consensus manufacture around those claims astonished me and I that was as somebody who was not a Donald Trump supporter and so was not necessarily sympathetic to the claim that he was being set up and I even found some of that far-fetched at the time I thought oh well where there's smoke there must be some fire you know this is exaggerated but 
surely there's something to this. I remember thinking that with Adam Schiff in particular. This sounds a bit far-fetched, but surely no member of the United States Congress could just invent this kind of thing whole cloth. Once you realize, yes, a member of the United States Congress could invent this kind of thing whole cloth, once you realize the Steele dossier was not a tragic error of assessment, you know, a mistake made, not an intelligence failure, but was a paid-for political product coming out of the Clinton campaign, once you start to realize that, you have to re-examine some of your foundational assumptions. And I did that, and gradually over time, I started to put these pieces together. I should say after I left the Daily Beast, it was some years later, probably around 2017, when it really began to click for me. So let's take a look at the anatomy of this system that has emerged. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me as I read, you know, the hoax of the century is that it didn't all happen at once, but yet all the, the architecture was all kind of present to be able to facilitate this whole of society, you know, whole of country structure that emerged. I think that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things I learned in the Army that always stuck with me and uh, was a very useful lesson was you can accomplish a great deal with only what we would call task, purpose, and commander's intent. So in other words, if you give a, a group of uh, motivated, decently trained American soldiers just those three things, a task, the specific thing you want them to do, build a fort, a purpose, build the fort to defend against uh, you know, an, an invasion by barbarians, and then the commander's intent, you're defending against the uh, invasion of barbarians so that we can hold on to the key city of wherever, that with that sort of broad outline, you can accomplish a great deal. You don't need a complicated schematic telling you how to build the fort, precisely where to lay the foundations. So I would say that's basically what was in place in 2016. You had a cohesive sense among a number of people at high levels of the U.S. government, the Democratic Party, and the anti-Trump resistance, which included both Democrats and Republicans. They had a task, which was to discredit Donald Trump and to prevent a repeat of the kind of insurgencies, not only Donald Trump, but Bernie Sanders and Brexit represented. And their intent was to stay in power. And given that, it wasn't necessary to have a detailed diagram of how a, a conspiracy would be executed. Much more powerful, much more effective was this natural kind of cohesion around shared class interest. They were common members of a, a ruling class that already shared cultural assumptions, certain guiding principles, even cultural tastes and affinities. And they had a very clear sense of who their common enemy was and of what the stakes were. And so with all of that, then you had this gradual evolution the counter-disinformation people refer to themselves over and over again as a whole-of-society effort. So the lead organization in this whole-of-society effort is the Global Engagement Center in the State Department. Now, the Global Engagement Center was begun in 2016 to combat ISIS messaging, essentially, jihadist messaging, and in particular, the messaging online on social media coming from the Islamic State. So it already had a mandate focused on information operations, and it was headed up by a former Navy SEAL and counterterrorism official named Michael Lumpkin. And that same organization is remissioned, essentially, at the end of 2016 by President Obama as the lead government agency in the fight against disinformation which is a term that barely existed except in the annals of Cold War era documents prior to, let's say, late 
2015. You couldn't find 100 people um, in Washington, D.C. who could meaningfully talk to you about disinformation in, in 2014. Now, of course, there's a dozen of them in every room that you enter because there's so much money and so much government power behind it. But the GEC became the coordinating hub of the counter-disinformation effort. Then, as I mentioned previously, once the DHS outgoing chief, Johnson, declared uh, control over the nation's electoral infrastructure, which evolved into the internet itself because they later declared that the internet counted as electoral infrastructure because political messaging was spread over the internet. Now you had a DHS mission, which evolved even from that point with the uh, growth of the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, in 2018 into policing cognitive infrastructure. So that's the, the government piece at the federal agency level. At the same time, you have the intelligence agencies who are essentially providing the justification for this unprecedented, extraordinary expansion of unaccountable, undemocratic administrative power by their credentialing of the Russiagate hoax. So you have the FBI, the CIA under John Brennan, other agencies uh, sort of by silent ascent going on with this. You have the security and intelligence agencies providing the justification for this power grab and at the same time installing new task forces inside the social media companies themselves like the Foreign Influence Task Force that the FBI installs inside of Twitter's headquarters in 2017, uh, whereby with this direct linkage between the FBI and the social media company, they can now sort of have instant access to say, these are the things we want censored. This information is Russian disinformation. You better censor it. They can also coordinate with other intelligence agencies like the CIA. So there's effectively a merger between the social media companies, which represent what the, the top level power brokers, both in the intelligence agencies and I would say in the Democratic Party going all the way up to President Obama, view as the sort of nerve centers of politics in the 20th century. They see social media, especially after Hillary Clinton's loss, which they blame on Facebook, they see social media itself as the key terrain to deciding who wins political contests. So they install task forces inside of the key terrain, essentially conquering the key terrain and yoking the key terrain to their own agenda. So, so far we have the federal agencies like uh, the State Department, Department of Homeland Security, and the social media companies. The other big piece is the sort of combined power of the narrative forming and uh, decision making apparatus, which you might say is the media and the universities and the nonprofits. I'm lumping all of them together for the time being as a shorthand to say this is the other big industry, as it were, the narrative-forming industry. And they all get brought into this two ways, all of these being institutions that are had been predisposed to favor Hillary Clinton and to view Donald Trump as an illegitimate candidate. In some sense, they're naturally uh, predisposed towards accepting a kind of resistance orientation. But they're also swayed by the money coming into this emerging counter-disinformation complex in what is otherwise, in the case of journalism, an industry in freefall. So, you know, journalism is losing money. The, the establishment media is not only shedding credibility with the public, it's also losing money to upstart media companies, to social media, to challengers that will emerge like Substack and the sort of you know, non-gatekeeper media, as it were, for better or worse, responding to that rather than improving their own product, doing better reporting, trying not to get big events wrong like they did with the 2016 election. Instead, they respond by 
lashing their function as news gatherers to the imperatives and prerogatives of the security state. And so they volunteer themselves essentially as enforcers uh, and experts in this new counter disinformation industry. So somebody has to define what disinformation is and that job ultimately falls to the sort of combined power of the nonprofits and the universities and the media who, and the nonprofits and the universities, they provide the sort of expert analysis and then that gets mainstreamed by the media. And what all of this represents, these various arms, is a single body, a single coordinated, unified effort. And that is precisely what the original founding vision of the GEC called for. It was what they said, a, a whole of government effort won't be enough. We need a whole of society effort. So, you know, this is not conspiracy. This is what the GEC itself had called for, and it has obvious precedents. And the historical precedent is wartime mobilization. In wartime, we expect to see industries nationalized. A factory that had been producing widgets getting nationalized and ordered to produce munitions because there is an immediate wartime need for that. We know that model. In this case, we're seeing effectively the same thing, except that the war itself is a ruse, essentially, and rather than nationalizing uh, physical production, what's being nationalized is social media, opinion production, perception production. You know, I have a confession to make, actually, which is, you know, when I first saw the legislation that would go out to establish the Global Engagement Center, I was actually thrilled. The reason I was thrilled was because I saw, you know, for the first, what seemed to be for the first time, the United States taking seriously the need to provide counter-propaganda to what the Chinese Communist Party had been doing through the United Front and, and many other similar operations. I think it was Senator Portman at the time who introduced that legislation. It was not, I, I didn't even have it in my frame of reference that this structure would be used this way. And there was this, you know, it reminds me of what Mike, and I think he referenced this also in the, in the, in the piece, but what Mike Benz calls the switcheroo right, happens, where things get switched from this focus on, in general, the structure focuses on external threats and creating external narratives to America to s focusing on internal threats, right? I'm glad you bring that up because uh, I definitely don't want to seem like I got this right all along, and I think you and I were in very much the same place. I didn't even register the Global Engagement Center when it was christened. So I didn't have an opinion about it one way or another. But certainly I shared the general belief that some kind of counter-messaging could be effective, um, you know, targeting jihadist groups, which seemed to have, especially with ISIS, which presented this very uh, tension-grabbing new form of social media propaganda. And in fact, I wrote an article about this when I was at the Daily Beast in 2014. Uh, the title of which was uh, ISIS is using social media to target you, meaning you, the American public, you, the global audience. And the official, counterterrorism official who I cited in that piece was none other than Clint Watts, who I found to be a very intelligent um, analyst of these things and, and who I think indeed produced some intelligent analysis. So. Then the question is, you know, did we get it wrong or, or did something happen? And probably some of both, and I've gotten plenty wrong in my life, so I don't feel too bad about it. But I have to disagree with Mike Benz's, um, his framing of this as a, a switcheroo, and I think Benz is, you know, one of the authoritative sources on all of this, so I take what he says quite seriously. But when I look at the evolution of the counter-disinformation complex from being focused on foreign threats to being focused on domestic political opponents, I think that that was a, a, merely a question of sequence. I think its orientation was always clear from the very beginning. And in fact, you can see the evidence of that in statements made by Michael Lumpkin, the original head of the GEC and a former Navy SEAL and counterterrorism official in 2016, he gives an, an interview to a uh, kind of defense industry 
journal in which he criticizes or takes issue with the restrictions placed on the uh, counter-terrorism, counter-information operations uh, structure in the United States, the restrictions placed on it by the 1974 Privacy Act, which he suggests is outdated and antiquated and placing a dangerous obstacle in the way of the necessary counter-disinformation, counter-terrorism uh, work of the United States. And what he says, essentially, is that the Internet has destroyed, or, or the Internet has made obsolete the separation between an American citizen and a citizen of Bali for the purposes of information operations. So if you are a terrorist doing terrorist propaganda work online, what does it matter if you're in Bali or in the United States? The internet respects no borders, and therefore privacy laws that tell counterterrorism officials they can surveil, do warrantless surveillance on this person but not on that person, uh, you know, these are themselves antiquated because uh, how can we uphold privacy laws that respect national boundaries and national borders when the internet itself effaces those? So it's inherent in the makeup of this system and it's inherent in the kind of orientation, I, I would argue, of digital counterinsurgency itself, which seeks a kind of total information control. The original framework, perhaps, to understand this is a program that was suspended in 2002 called Total Information Awareness. And Total Information Awareness was a, an attempt to set up a, the ultimate database, the database to end all database, in which every bit of information about individuals, their phone records, their metadata, their behavioral patterns, their uh, you know, doctor's visits potentially, would be entered into a centralized database that could then produce what's known as predictive analysis. In other words, and sort of to come back to what I was talking about in Afghanistan, the idea was, the illusion was, that if only you could give the machines enough information, they could tell you what was coming next. But of course, that only works if you, if you get rid of these silly privacy laws and these silly constitutional protections that would prevent you from feeding all the data in. So I, I think that it's not necessarily that the system had to evolve into what it is now. Decisions matter. I'm not a determinist in that sense. But you can certainly see how inherent in the merger of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and this information war approach without very strict legal and constitutional protections that it was going to end up here. You mentioned uh, the election of Donald Trump, Brexit, um, and so forth as insurgencies earlier. I find, it that, I find that very interesting. And this is running, and I think you make this case to some extent, this whole operation is running as a kind of counterinsurgency operation. Like they view, let's say, the MAGA Republicans or the health free freedom people or um, any other significant deviation from the orthodox view of, I guess, what we're supposed to believe, what's supposed to be the consensus as a kind of insurgency. I find that whole framework, frankly, incredibly disturbing. So, you know, is that, is that what you're arguing here? I, I would agree that it's incredibly disturbing. Um... I'm arguing that that's how these political developments were seen by what had become a kind of global technocratic uh, ruling class. And uh, global is maybe a bit too strong, but certainly a technocratic ruling class that was centered in the United States that had its capital in Washington, D.C., but has satellites in uh, particularly other Five Eyes countries and other NATO allies of the United States. So Brexit, for instance, was you know viewed very much in the same terms as illegitimate, as a threat, not only to the ruling class itself, but to the legitimacy of the political order. And this was a, a kind of brilliant trick of the 
technocratic rulers is to have identified themselves with political legitimacy. You could replace one sort of uh, centrist technocratic leader with another. Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney, for that matter, could replace Barack Obama. But somebody outside that class representing a threat not simply to an individual ruler, but to the overall system erected to protect certain class interests and the prerogatives of a particular class, that became synonymous with a threat to the legitimacy of the political system itself and with a threat to civilization for that matter. You know, people often sort of marvel at the, the defenders of, of democracy being so utterly hostile to and contemptuous of the will of voters, right? And it's like, how do you make sense of that? How are, how are the, you know, these people at the Washington Post or whatever, democracy dies in darkness and, and uh, these sort of great experts on uh, democratic legitimacy who turn around after presenting themselves in those terms, turn around and then um, cast aspersions on, uh, you know, the results of a a democratic election and, and say, we believe in democracy, that's why we have to undermine the presidency of, of Donald Trump. And whatever you think of Donald Trump, it's, it's not uh, democratic by any stretch of the imagination to lead a bureaucratic ruling class coup against a legitimately elected president. That may be many things, but democracy it is not, and yet it could be presented in those terms because through the information war, um, this, the ruling class had claimed power over language itself and over meaning itself. This is to come back to this idea that the information war is both a crime and a disguise, a weapon and a disguise. By claiming absolute power over language, where you can determine what's true, what's disinformation, what needs to be censored. You can just alter the meaning of words, like democracy, for instance, to fit your own moment-to-moment -moment prerogatives, and, and that's what happened. Coming up next on American Thought Leaders. The single most, I would say, significant whole of society initiative carried out by the counter-disinformation enterprise was the 2020 Election Integrity Partnership. In part two of my interview with Jacob Siegel, we dive deeper into technocratic information control, exploring how the Election Integrity Partnership and U.S. agencies colluded with media and big tech to socially engineer the populace using anti-democratic means. We need to permanently end the relationship between the federal government and the technology sector as it exists now. The danger is that in competing with China, we become like China. And that's what has been happening so far.